0: Hey there, and welcome to your weekly episode of I Didn't Sign Up For This with Allison Casanova and myself, Jade Shaw. We are both licensed marriage and family therapists here in the Bay Area of California. Whether you're a practitioner yourself or just interested in topics around mental health and therapy, join us here for some real and honest conversations. Please note
1: that this podcast is not a replacement for therapy or medical advice. Any questions about your specific situation should be directed to your own therapist or primary care physician. Thank you for listening.
0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode four of our podcast, I Didn't Sign Up For This. Today, we are talking about differentiating between the different types of providers and how to choose the right one for you. So we chose this topic because In my experience, I have found that there is a lot of confusion between the different types of providers that you can go to for wellness and mental health. And I want to point out that this confusion exists between potential clients and providers. I will admit that Allison and I had to do a little bit of our own research before doing this podcast because... There are so many different types of providers and it gets a little bit confusing about why you might choose one over the other, what the benefits are, what the drawbacks, and what each provider can do. So that sort of brings me to a little definition that I wanted to throw out there in order to help understand some of the things that we're going to be talking about. The first one is the scope of practice. So that is basically what a provider is legally allowed to do under their license and the second is the scope of competence so that is what a provider can do based on their training and pretty much self-explanatory what they are competent in doing so somebody might be legally allowed to do something based on what their license or their board allows them to do but they aren't competent or trained in a specific area and therefore they shouldn't be doing it. So just a little something to keep in mind. I think that's something that we'll be addressing, and we might use those terms. They may come up as we talk. So the different types of providers we're going to be talking about are a life coach, a counselor, social workers, marriage and family therapists, psychologists, and psychiatrists. So within those, we are going to describe what each of them are, some of the credentials and experience that these providers need to call themselves what they are, and then what they typically do and why you might choose that provider to go see.
1: So before we get into the different types of providers. We just want to make a note to be aware that within each category, just like within any kind of profession, whether you are a teacher, a librarian, a police officer, a doctor, a life coach, a counselor, every every category, every profession has people that are very well trained and know what they're doing. And there are going to be people in each category or profession that maybe not have the same amount of training. So maybe they're not as qualified or maybe they just don't click with you. And it's okay to meet somebody and not feel like you are getting what you need from them or feel like you quote unquote don't like them or that they're not good
0: for you. Yeah, definitely a good point. So to jump right into the first type of provider that we're going to be talking about, we are going to talk about a life coach. So a life coach is somebody that can meet with a client to address specific personal and or professional goals or transitions. So a life coach will basically sit down with you, get to know you, and then look at a situation that you're in and go over the current or possible obstacles of meeting that goal that you are trying to meet And then they will, through a process, create an action oriented plan with you to help you meet that goal. So, the things that you can address with a life coach are going to be a range of things, and some are specialized in certain areas, and some are going to be more general focused. So, the credentials or training experience that are required in order to become a life coach are not as stringent as some of the other providers. So while there is no governing board or licensing requirements to become a life coach, some life coaches do decide to become accredited with what's called the International Coach Federation. So this is basically an organization that a life coach can become accredited with that requires certain training in certain areas as well as requiring them to follow a code of ethics and a code of conduct. Now, again, like Allison said earlier, there will probably be providers who are very qualified who aren't accredited with this organization and there may be life coaches who are accredited who don't quite mesh with you as well. So if you do decide to go see a life coach, don't be afraid to, just like with any type of provider, explore to find the one that fits best with you. And we'll get into certain things to look for to find the best provider for you, whether it be a life coach or psychiatrist and what you're looking for.
1: So for life coaches, something that I've seen pretty common across the board is you might find somebody who is advertising as a life coach, but they are also a psychologist or a marriage and family therapist. And one of the reasons in my understanding that a lot of people do that too isn't because they don't want to use the credentials that they have in the other category, but because The term life coach seems a little bit more relatable at times and less scary at times. So it's easier for people to say, oh, I'm going to go see a life coach. There's less stigma there. So a lot of times you will see somebody advertising that they do that while they also have another credential. You can see it the other way too, where it's just the life coach. But I wanted to throw that out there because it might be confusing.
0: Mm -hmm. Yes. Good point. And also from what I understand, people who do have that dual role don't practice both at the same time because there are different guidelines in terms of ethics or even the code of conduct. It gets confusing and some would say unethical to practice both at the same time. So to be somebody's therapist and a life coach. So depending on what you're looking for.
1: But I do see it Mm -hmm. And I think what ends up happening is they'll have maybe one kind of consent form for one. And if they're seeing you under this scope, that's the only thing that they're doing with you. And then they'll do somebody under a different one, if that makes sense.
0: Right. Yeah, exactly. So not switching back and forth in the same hour. Yeah, exactly. Something to keep in mind. So to get into why you might choose to see a life coach or when it might be beneficial, we are looking at what your sort of intention is in seeking a provider. So a life coach is going to be somebody who works with you on a specific goal and is not really going to get into exploring your past, exploring your history, diving into mental illness, or really the deeper things that say a therapist or a social worker or a psychologist might get into. They are really focused on the present and the future and getting you to where you want to go.
1: So an example of something that I've heard somebody working on with a life coach is getting more organized. You know, mm-hmm. I I have really difficult time organizing my schoolwork and making sure that I balance it with the stuff at home and with my family. So I might see somebody to help me kind of figure out how I can go about doing that. And I can be maybe more productive and feel a little bit less stressed about it.
0: Yeah. Perfect example. Getting organized. It's like a very action oriented goal. Another reason that I've heard for people to go to life coaches and this reason sort of depends on person to person. But I think there is somewhat less of a stigma in going to see a life coach versus a therapist. Sometimes people are more comfortable saying that they have a life coach versus they're going to therapy. And so it is to some people more accepted.
1: The other thing that I've seen too is because they aren't governed by a board, they have more flexibility. So I've heard people bringing life coaches with them to events to help them in the moment with things or, you know, to go, I've heard of going shopping with them to kind of help them with different things and might not be something that a therapist would be able to do depending on
0: the situation. Yeah. (laughs) On that note too, life coaches may be able to self-disclose more frequently than a different type of provider would, because they aren't under that governing board or sort of ethical requirements that a therapist or psychologist might be, right? They're sort of allowed to be a little bit more personal with you in terms of their experiences and thoughts. But I I will say that a life coach, based on my research, will not be giving you advice. They will still be helping you to reach your goal in a way that works for you and trying to sort of guide you to that goal with things that you come up with, not telling you what to do.
1: So then we have counselors. And I think this term is super broad because I hear people referring to psychologists, marriage and family therapists, social workers, all as counselors. And we can be called a counselor or a therapist that's just kind of a broad term but if you want to really look into the different kind of categories of counselors we have a licensed professional clinical counselor we have a guidance counselor a school counselor and then a substance abuse counselor and I don't know if maybe there's more that we need to add in there but I think that those were the categories we talked about
0: yeah I would also throw in too that sometimes if you are Looking to see a provider in an agency, they will just be called counselor.
1: Mm-hmm. That's a very good point. It's just because it's easier. It's it's more inviting to hear counselor because it's just it encompasses so much and all the different specifics. So I won't go too much into the credentialing and training for each one because it's a lot. Uh, of different providers in kind of one category, but I'll be super general and then you can kind of add more if you want to. So a licensed professional clinical counselor requires a master's degree, a completion of 3,000 hours post-degree. That is also supervised and they are required to take an examination, two examinations as well. So that's all the same as a marriage and family therapist. They are also trained to work with a variety of different people, individuals, families, groups that impact mental health. I think the big difference there is that they have a national exam, so they can practice anywhere in the United States, whereas with a marriage and family therapist, it's specific to each state.
0: Overall, they're pretty
1: similar. Yeah. So you would probably see them for a similar reason as you would see a marriage and family therapist for. A guidance counselor is specific to a school, so you're not going to find that outside of a school. And A guidance counselor is more academically, they're looking at what you have to complete to finish school, and what you've already completed, and what the best course of action would be for you. So generally speaking, a guidance counselor does need a bachelor's degree in some kind of behavioral or social science, this is the same. They also need a master's degree but it's in school counseling instead of counseling psychology. A school counselor can be a licensed professional clinical counselor. They can be a social worker. They can be a marriage and family therapist. They can be a psychologist. It's just somebody who has mental health training that is docked at a school, and they might be hired by the school, or they might be contracted through a different agency to be there to kind of offer that support. And then you have a substance abuse counselor. They have several different kinds of certifications and different kinds of degrees. So two that I'm familiar with are the Certified Alcohol Drug Counselor Associate. So that's C-A-D-C-A, I call it a CADAC. Mm -hmm. And then a licensed advanced alcohol drug counselor. And I call that an LDAC. It's L-A-A-D-C. So the difference between those two is for the KDAC, You just have your associates and your bachelor's degree. And you have to complete a practicum with a supervisor and pass an exam and apply for the certification after the exam. And you need a certain amount of hours. With a LDAC, you also have the same thing that you have a master's degree. And if you don't have a master's degree, I think you have to complete more hours in order to get it. And both of those uh, are focused just in providing substance abuse-specific counseling, so you can't go to them for something other than that. And they both require you to have an internship where you're getting hours and you're supervised, and they both require you to have a test and to pass that examination and then get certified with the licensed.
0: Yeah, so typically you won't see a counselor in a private practice setting. You're probably going to see someone with the title of counselor in an agency. Is that fair to say? If they have that specific title, yes. I think that
1: okay. most people will use that title for pretty general across the board, but if you're going to see that title somewhere, I think depending on the agency that you're at, that's maybe what you're going to see. But I do think you'll see the credentials after their name.
0: Yeah. Again, this one is really confusing because the term counselor is so widely used. Some therapists who are marriage and family therapists will call themselves counselors. So it does get a little bit confusing. This one entails a lot. So to get into talking about social workers Social workers are also pretty closely related to marriage and family therapists in that they can provide therapy to clients as well. They are mental health professionals who work in both private practice or you might see them in agency settings, just the same as a marriage and family therapist. However, a social worker will often have a focus on connecting clients with community resources. So think Along the lines of social justice, public policy, those are areas that they have additional training in when they're going through grad school or in that process of getting licensed. So they also practice under the Board of Behavioral Sciences, which is the same as a marriage and family therapist. So again, pretty similar. Their requirements in terms of credentials and experience Also similar, they have to have a master's degree in social work from an accredited college. They have 3,200 hours of experience that they need to complete, and a portion of that is going to be in case management. So that is, again, that resourcing and connecting clients to community resources.
1: They don't have as much school experience with different theories and backgrounds like a marriage and family therapist would. But they can definitely provide therapy and that mental health aspect just like a marriage and family therapist would.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that even between providers, again, there is a lot of back and forth about the difference between social workers and marriage and family therapists. And I have seen really, really great providers of therapy who are social workers and marriage and family therapists. So again, they're going to be pretty similar, but if you're looking for somebody who can really connect you with community resources and to address things like i said social justice public policy Um, a lot of times you'll see these people connecting you to uh, like food banks uh, getting you connected with medicare or medi-cal they're going to be the ones who are more trained in getting you connected to those types of resources
1: And I think those are maybe the two that get confused the most because they are so, so very similar. In my internships across the board before I became licensed, I bumped into so many different people who were getting their licensed social worker certification instead of the marriage and family therapist, but we were doing exactly the same thing. So I think it kind of just depends on what you want to be more focused on whether mm-hmm. that's the the so I'm gonna explain it to you how one of my professors explained it to me in an undergrad because I think he did such a fantastic job of explaining this and I don't know if I should say who it is because give him the credit or not but <laughs> he said that if you have a leak and you're walking down and you look over and it has created this massive pit where people are just drowning in it. If you are a a marriage and family therapist, you are going to walk to each one of those people and you're going to take their hand and help them out because you're helping each one of them individually with this big crisis. If you are more emphasized on being a social worker, you're going to look at the big thing and you're going to try and figure out where the leak is so you can stop it and help everybody at once. Huh. I like that. Yeah. I think it really does kind of give you a, a better understanding of how their emphasis is are different, but how they're still helping and a social worker could help each person individually. It's just their background shows them more to help as a whole, where our background, I can help everybody as a whole, but my background more is to help each person individually.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I hope that that clarifies a little bit more of why you might choose a social worker as your provider. And as a quick note, when you are looking for providers, somebody who has LCSW after their name, that is going to be a licensed clinical social worker. Whereas if you're looking at a marriage and family therapist, you'll see LMFT, they're licensed. So we can get into that a little bit more later, but just as a side note.
1: And also, as a side note, I know I keep referring to internship. It's actually, they're not called interns anymore. There was a law that was passed in January, and interns are now called associates. Yes, associates. That's correct. So let's get into marriage and family therapists. I know we kind of compared this already, so you kind of already have an idea The one big difference is that as a marriage and family therapist, we can work with anybody, married, families, not married, in a group, individual, to support you in working through the mental and emotional and relational concerns of life. But it has to be affecting your relationship. So for example, if you have somebody who is terrified of dogs, but it's not really impacting their life at all it's not necessarily something you would go to a marriage and family therapist for however if you are terrified of dogs but the guy that you're dating has a dog and it's really impacting your relationship with him then yeah we can help you with that so it's kind of confusing it has to be affecting your relationships and your functioning in order for us to be able to help you Then you go into, we have to have a master's degree in either counseling psychology or clinical psychology, and then to have your 3,000 supervised
0: hours and then your two exams. As a licensed marriage and family therapist in California, we can't just move to Idaho and decide that we want to practice because each state has different requirements. So when we talk about these things, we are talking about the California requirements for these providers? So
1: someone might choose a marriage and family therapist for a crisis intervention or for a brief focused therapy to solve a problem that's super quick. Or you might go to somebody and be seeing them for a while because you're looking at that past stuff. I know Jade had said in the beginning that we might focus a little bit more on the past and the family and how it's affecting you today, whereas maybe a life coach is just be, just looking at what is the problem that you're having right now and how can we fix it moving forward. You might see a marriage and family therapist do the same thing, but most of the time we're looking at how your past and your family has affected you moving forward and how that is maybe causing you to have the struggles that you're having right now.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I imagine that other therapists are different and sort of have their own approach and own treatments that they follow. But I look a lot at past history and patterns. Patterns are a really big thing for me as a marriage and family therapist. So a lot of that exploring how that past and how that history and how those patterns have affected your present situation and how we can work on those things to move forward.
1: Yeah, our primary service is offering you counseling or The other term that they use is psychotherapy just to kind of help you cope with the everyday issues that come up. Whereas a licensed clinical social worker, their emphasis is primarily on the evaluation and getting you to your resources and kind of advocating for you as a client. And if anybody has anything that they want to add to that, feel free to comment because I am not a licensed clinical social worker. So you might have a better, a better definition
0: yeah. And again, these are very quick, sort of quick and dirty overviews of each one. There is so much information on each one that if you're interested in learning more, uh, we will be linking to some of the websites that we used to get this information. So in the show notes, you can find places where you can learn more or, you know, like Allison said, shoot us a comment and let us know if you have any questions or are looking for more clarification. So diving into looking at psychologists, I will say a lot of times as a marriage and family therapist, I get emails from people who are wanting to come see me because they're looking for some type of evaluation. So this is where you're going to find a psychologist to come in handy. A psychologist is a mental health professional who has a doctorate degree in psychology. So before we move on any further, I will say that typically that doctorate is going to be either a PhD or a PsyD, and I think a lot of times PsyDs are less talked about than a PhD. So just to kind of go over what each one of these are quickly, professionals who have a PhD in psychology have a background centered around research. So that's going to be setting up experiments, running experiments, collecting data, looking at the data and using that as a way to either find out more information about treatments or things that work for people. A lot of research being done there. A PsyD was actually developed in the 1970s as an alternative to the PhD for people who wanted to have a doctorate but have a more clinical focus. So They're going to be focused more on providing the psychological services, whereas a PhD and a PsyD can do this. It's sort of a matter of where their focus is going to be. So that being said, from here on out, I'm just going to refer to both of these as psychologists because they both are psychologists. Their emphasis is just in something different. So a psychologist can administer certain psychological tests and evaluations that other providers like marriage and family therapists, social workers, life coaches cannot provide. So looking back on when I referred to people emailing me and wanting to come see me for evaluations, this is a time when as a licensed marriage and family therapist, I am going to refer them instead to a psychologist.
1: The other thing too is so we can diagnose you, Mm -hmm. right? So if you, let's say if I'm seeing a lot of symptoms or characteristics and I think that it, it really looks like you have attention deficit hyperactive disorder. I might say that that is what I'm diagnosing you with, but I might recommend that you go to a psychologist to get a formal assessment because they're going to be going in and administering all of the tests to really kind of give you an idea of where you are on that spectrum and if you even qualify, it might look like something else. But so we're allowed to still give you that diagnosis and help you based on our background and experience because our diagnosis for us is just looking at the characteristics and the symptoms that you have and how we can help you, how we can formulate like a a treatment plan and goals to be able to help you work through those. We don't necessarily do the assessment or the, the test part so they can do that and give you a more accurate, a more in-depth kind of idea of what's going on.
0: Yeah, exactly. Um so in terms of credentialing and experience, both a PhD and a psy have to have those three thousand hours of supervised experience hours and 1,500 of those have to be after they have graduated. They also have training in certain courses like human sexuality, child abuse assessment. So again, a lot of the same things that a marriage and family therapist or social worker would have, they also have that training. Uh, In terms of exams, they also have to pass two exams. So just to sort of rewind a little bit, as a marriage and family therapist, We are required to take a law and ethics exam, and then once we pass that, we can sit for our licensing exam. For psychologists, that's reversed. So they sit for what's called an examination for professional practice in psychology, and then after they pass that, they are eligible to take the California law and ethics exam. So there are two exams that they have to pass. Anything you want to add to that?
1: If you're looking for the board that governs them, it is the Board of Psychology. So it's a little different from the BBS, which governs the Board of Behavioral Science, which governs licensed clinical social workers. I believe they also uh, are a charge of licensed professional clinical counselors and then marriage and family therapists.
0: Perfect. So again, reasons you might go see a psychologist as a provider are if you need assessments done, if you're looking for an evaluation, and oftentimes psychologists are going to be the ones who will speak on behalf of mental health for somebody going through a court proceeding. So while this can be done by other providers, in my experience, I found that it's most often psychologists who do this, and that's because they can do those evaluations and those assessments that other providers cannot do. Um, One last little sort of caveat that I want to mention too is that a school psychologist does not require a PhD. So we're not going to get too deep into that because our focus here is on providers that you would be looking for for yourself. But just as a note, they sometimes do have their PhDs, but not always.
1: Their main focus is to assess for things that a person going to school um, that would interfere with their schooling would be struggling with so it's a little they still have the ability to be able to test and assess for certain things it's just more limited than somebody who went through the program to practice outside of a school so a psychiatrist is somebody who has a medical degree they are able to prescribe psychotropic medication they can offer therapy but in my experience most of the time they don't just because They are a lot more expensive than a therapist and most of the people that are coming to them get that assessment, that initial assessment, and then they continue to go in for quick checkups to monitor how their medicine is doing and how they're getting along and if they have anything that they want to report, like different symptoms or side effects that they're experiencing and work with them in that respect. So sometimes they don't have as much room to offer that counseling every week. However, some of them still do. So they still have that training and the ability to do that, but their emphasis is mostly
0: on prescribing medicine. Yeah, I'm glad that you point that out. A psychiatrist is actually a medical doctor, so it's pretty rare that they would have the availability to have a full 50 minute session. So, what that means is a lot of times somebody who has a psychiatrist will often have a therapist as well. And then those two providers can case manage. They can talk to each other about what that client needs. So, two different providers who sort of collaborate to give you the best care.
1: So, to go into what their training is so, they do have a doctor's degree, so, they have four years that they're training rather than the regular two-year master's degree and then however long it takes you to get your hours. Sometimes it takes people two years, sometimes it takes them a little bit more. They are going to be, even though they, they do learn the other courses that the other counselors are required to do, they also have more training in diagnosing maybe than we do and prescribing medicine and the medical
0: part of it. Yeah. I'm pretty blown away actually by the amount of education and experience that is required to become a psychiatrist. So when you think about it, they're not only completing med school, they're also completing four years of psychiatry residency. So working with patients usually in a hospital setting that have mental illness. And then they spend another three or more years learning about the diagnoses and the treatments. So that's what Allison was referring to in terms of like the additional training in mental health. And then they have training on psychotherapy, psychiatric medications, other treatments. And then some go on to get additional training in a specialized area. So we're talking mm-hmm. about psychiatry for children or more specific areas like that. So It's a very extensive amount of education and training that these folks go through. And that's because they are working on the medical side and the mental health side, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. They can order full labs just like a doctor would. They can provide the medication and they can also implement treatments that other providers can't like electroconvulsive shock therapy so i'll get into what that is in just a second but that's something that other providers can't do that a psychiatrist can do because they've had that additional medical training so
1: yeah they go through a lot of training they are very well qualified yes
0: yeah So just to sort of define that a little bit, electroconvulsive shock therapy or ECT is a medical treatment that involves applying electrical currents to the brain. And this is usually used for people with really severe depression after other treatments haven't worked. So this is kind of like the psychiatrist pulling out the big guns, right? Um, And that's, that's why they have so much additional training and education and experience. You know, they really are able to address both sides. Something else that
1: I do want to add on is no matter what you are credentialed in most category requires you to do a certain amount of continuing education. Every time you renew your license. Mm -hmm. And what that means is you have to have certain classes that you're taking so that you can continue to develop your education and continue to understand what the most recent laws and ethics and updates are in different things that you're helping people with so that you're making sure that you have the most recent and up-to-date information and
0: you can do the best that you can to help people. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, did you want to talk about why you might choose a psychiatrist? I think it's pretty clear, but just to lay it out. I there. feel like that's
1: pretty clear, but I can I can definitely touch on it. <laughs> I think for a psychiatrist, that's when you're feeling like you might want to try medicine to help support what's going on with you. And you might decide that you meet somebody and you want to get therapy and medicine management from them, but you might also decide, you know, once you kind of get that evaluation and you want to go from there, you might want to continue getting the medicine management from them, but then see somebody else to do the therapy part, whoever that might be, whatever kind of works for you. Psychiatrists are, because they have so much training and because they're so qualified, are going to be much more expensive than... Another category of a therapist. The other thing too, though, is because they're a doctor, they're normally under your health plan, depending on where you are. You're gonna find psychiatrists most of the time more in hospitals. Some of them do have practices, private practices, and some of them don't accept insurance. But most of the time, they can do some kind of um, work with your insurance company because they're doctors. I know for us. There are therapists that do accept insurance and therapists that don't, and I think it's very similar with psychiatrists, but I think most of the time you're going to find more of them that are covered under health insurance.
0: So that bridges us really nicely into the next part of this episode that we wanted to talk about in terms of how to find the right provider for you. So once you've sort of narrowed down what you're dealing with and what kind of support you're looking for... You can choose what type of provider you're going to want to go see. And in that, somebody who you meet with first might end up referring you to a different type of provider. So for example, like I was saying earlier, sometimes people come to me and are looking for evaluations and I might refer to a psychologist for that. So any type of provider who would be working outside of their scope of practice or scope of competence should be referring you to the proper provider if you're looking for something that they can't provide. So with that being said, one of the things that I consider really important, and I've talked about this in previous podcasts is how you can get along and interact with that provider. Somebody that you don't get along with and don't respect basically is probably not going to be the best provider for you. And I say that because if I don't respect somebody and if I don't sort of get along with them to a certain degree, I'm not gonna want to be as honest with them as I might need to be in order to get the best support that is possible for me.
1: Something to add on to that too is the scope of confidence. So that one is a little bit more, I think, difficult to explain because even though most of the people in this big category of helping professions have the ability to provide counseling and they have a certain amount of training, maybe, maybe some people have a little bit more than others, we are all allowed to offer this support with your mental health but there are, so generally speaking, but there are certain people that are maybe going to have a specialty and so they're going to have more training in one thing over the other. So for example, if you have a therapist who works a lot with people who have eating disorders and that is their specialty and they know all about nutrition and they know all about the biology of an eating disorder and how it how it affects your body and how to work with somebody that is struggling with that. They are probably going to be able to help a little bit more than somebody who doesn't have that specific training. Not that that person can't help, but they're not going to have as much training and as much experience in someone who maybe has a focus on that because they're going to be getting more of their continuing education units in that and they've maybe gotten extra training on top of what our training normally was.
0: Right. Yeah, absolutely. And again, for me, that falls into the category of I might be able to work with you. I might legally be covered under my board, but am I really competent? Am I really trained well enough to be able to help you with this situation? Or should I be referring you to somebody who specializes in that and can really understand like the nitty gritty details of it? Another thing to consider are going to be their policies. So look at cancellation policies. Look at if they're in-network or out-of-network with insurance companies. I will say that there are advantages and disadvantages to both. So that's something that you might want to consider. And ways of treatment. So this kind of came up earlier in the episode as well as previous podcasts, but certain providers are going to have certain ways about treating their clients, what sort of methods they use in treatment. So finding the one that meshes the best for you. And this is another sort of topic that we'll get into in a future podcast, but Self-disclosure, some providers are going to be more open in terms of self-disclosure and some are going to be more closed off. You know, do you want somebody who will likely be more open? Then you might want to look at a life coach uh, or find a therapist that is more open to self-disclosure. So just identifying what your needs are and then exploring those different options within that category of provider that is going to be able to legally provide certain services to you that you're looking for.
1: And if you aren't really sure, you can always look at some providers that you feel like may be a good match and call them Mm -hmm. and ask because most of the time they're going to be able to send you in the right direction if they don't think that they're going to be a good fit. But most importantly, you have to make sure that that you are able to interact with them on some level. Maybe that's in person or over the phone at first and just kind of get a feel for who they are and how they work and then make the decision if you feel like they're going to be a good match after they've told you that they are able to help you. And if they don't feel like they can help you and they're gonna send you to someone else, then looking at those recommendations and kind of doing the same thing. Does, is this something that might work for me or do I need to look at something different? Because everybody has different emphases and different training and we're, we're all in the line of helping and we all wanna support you, but we all might have a different emphasis and different capabilities than somebody
0: else. Yeah, definitely. So I hope that we have provided you with some good information about how to differentiate between the different providers. And hopefully this will help you narrow down the type of provider that you are looking for, for what you need. I also realize that some of this may have brought up additional questions. So again, we'll link to those websites where you can get more information or feel free to comment on this and let us know if you have other questions that you would like answered.
1: And I mean, yes, please feel free to do your own research and to just ask questions because even though... We kind of gave you a general idea. We are by no means experts on each category and what it holds. Granted, we know a lot more about marriage and family Mm -hmm. therapists because that is the license that we have, so we have a lot more information on that. And maybe with the licensed professional clinical counselor and the social worker, just because we've had a lot of internships where we've had people with those specific licenses with us, but we kind of have maybe more of an idea of those ones because of our experience with them. But that, so we might not be able to answer all of the questions with the other, the other credentials.
0: Yeah. And if you're a provider and we've said something or given wrong information, please leave us a comment or let us know so that we can fix that and put that correct information out there. Because like Allison said, we're not experts in all of these. So, and you know, things change too. So if there's something
1: we might have wrong information, yeah,
0: we're doing the best we can. Exactly. (laughs) Um, And a really quick shout out and a big thank you to my really awesome friend, Muhammad El-Bagal. He gave me some good information on social workers. He is a social worker. So a big, big thank you to him for helping me out here. Now let's jump into our quick tips for adding some positivity and improvement to your life. Do you want to go first, Allison?
1: Sure. So my tip is, it has to do with the people that you have relationships with on a everyday basis. So it's not strangers or maybe people that you're not very close to, but the people that are in your life that you have built relationships with. A lot of times I will hear that, you're, that someone's getting into a disagreement or an argument with somebody or someone said something that really hurt them and they, it maybe, maybe bridged a gap between them and then you haven't really talked to them about it. So my tip is once you have gotten to a place where you can take a step back and you're not in it anymore to look at the bigger picture and assume best intention. Most of the times when you have somebody that is in your life that cares about you, they are not waking up in the morning thinking how am i really gonna mess your day up today they're waking up and they're wanting to have a good day and when we get into these arguments sometimes we're not understanding exactly what their intention is and where they're coming from so just to remind yourself that they're doing the best they can and they might not be trying to be malicious like we feel they might be
0: Yeah. You know, I listened to another podcast and they had talked about the idea of giving grace. And I think that we talk a lot about self-care and giving grace to ourselves and giving ourselves that time and sort of looking on the flip side of how can we give grace to other people? in a way that can, you know, possibly improve our relationships, but also make ourselves feel better. It probably doesn't feel super great to feel like people are out to do bad things to, or Get you or hurt yeah, you, yeah, mess up your life. So that is a good tip. My tip is related to social media. And I think that this is something that we all hear But just as a sort of gentle reminder, perhaps limit the amount of time that you're spending on social media every day. You know, with that comes not only a drain of time if you are intending to get on for a couple minutes and then you look at the clock and it's been an hour and you've been scrolling through people's feeds and, you know, going from link to link. But also I think it really does put us in a place where we're looking at the most positive things from everybody's life and comparing that to our life where we're experiencing bad days and arguments and difficult things, right? So It often does give us kind of a skewed perspective of where we should be at in our life, and I would say that's probably not great for mental health.
1: Social media depression is a thing. We put on this idea of what we want other people to see, and most often times we're not gonna put the worst things that are happening up on our feed, or we're we're not gonna post about them, or tweet about them, or put pictures about them. Some, Some people do, but I don't think it's general consensus. And something that I hear a lot too is that it's it's easy to get on and with this intention of getting updated with what's going on in the world or what's going on with your friends and family, but it is it is a time suck and it can take maybe more time than you want, and then you get mad at yourself. So it is important to figure out how to limit yourself so that you're feeling like you're doing what you want and you're not
0: feeling like you're wasting your time and you're not mad at yourself. Yeah, absolutely. So just to sort of be aware of how much time you're spending on social media and maybe decrease that time a little bit each day and see how you feel. You know, honestly, I got to be totally upfront with you. It was pointed out to me that I'd spent a lot of time on Facebook. And so I took Facebook off of my phone and I realized that, I didn't even think about getting on Facebook. I was doing it just sort of instinctively. I was just opening the app and then spending a bunch of time on there that I didn't even intend to spend. So tuning into how much you're actually spending on that and the effect that it's having on you and trying to just spend a little less time, that might be helpful.
1: Taking it off your phone is a good suggestion. Another one that I've heard is taking away the notifications because if you're not constantly getting notified, it's a lot easier to not get on it and maybe just take a specific amount of time each day where you're getting on it. I've also heard that on iPhones, you can put a social media time chunk on there where it'll kind of ding at you and tell you, you know, if if you only want to spend 15 minutes, it'll tell you when you've been on there for 15 minutes. So it's, that's also a really good reminder.
0: Yeah, that would be handy for sure. Okay.
1: That concludes our episode.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes. As Allison said, that concludes our episode four. Again, thank you so much for tuning in and listening to our podcast. We really appreciate it. Any comments or feedback you have, we'd love, love, love to hear from you. Our wonderful listeners. And until next time, so long. Bye.